Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We uh, have been going through the book of Romans verse by verse, literally chapter by chapter. And um, we saw in chapter 8, Paul kind of, uh, there was a last point before Paul took a side journey. Um, well, that's, that's really not an accurate way to say it. But before he started talking about Israel and God's dealing with Israel, in chapter 8, he's talking about the power of the Holy Ghost and how to tap into the power of the Spirit of God within to live a godly life. Chapters 9, 10, and 11, he began talking about God's dealing with Israel. And then he comes out of that into chapter 12 talking about what we should do, therefore, because of what God has done for us. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now, notice the first thing that Paul says is, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Paul is writing this by the Holy Ghost. But notice that Paul does not take upon himself to make a command. He doesn't say, I command you, therefore, brethren. And he could. He'd be right and appropriate to do so because it's certainly something that God is looking for from each and every one of us. But it's a beseeching. It's an encouraging. It's an entreaty that he's making. And notice what he bases that on. He beseeches us by the mercies of God. Now, the mercies of God that he's identified and talked about in the previous chapters are, are many-fold. One is he's talked about justification. We've been justified by the blood of Jesus. Another is talking about identification. We are in Christ Jesus, identified with him, not identified with our old man, not with Adam, but identified in Christ. Another thing he talked about is the, the presence of the indwelling spirit of God. Another mercy he talked about that is available to us and is ours is that uh, we're not under law, but we're under grace, dead to the law, just as much as we are dead to the old man, dead to the, uh, our connection with Adam, we're dead to the law, any law, any commands. We're also, uh, the mercy of God is uh, concerning the Holy Spirit and his help in our infirmities. Romans eight twenty six says, we know not what to pray for as we ought, but he's there to help us. It talks about divine election, how that uh, in the 9th, 10th, and 11th chapters, how that God has elected the Gentiles because the Jews rejected him. It talks about the coming glory. It talks about there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. All of these are aspects and, and the result of the mercy of God. And it, it gives us, through God's mercy and what God has done for us through Jesus, confidence in God's faithfulness. Now he says because of those mercies, he wants us to be persuaded to take action. Now that's going to be real important, folks. Keep that in mind because persuasion is a real issue. God is beseeching us by the Holy Ghost through the Apostle Paul to be persuaded by his mercies to take action. What action does he want us to take? To present our bodies a living sacrifice. Present our bodies a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. Most translations translate this instead of reasonable service. They translate it as spiritual worship. Now, not everyone does. Not every translation will. Uh, there are different translations. Some say intelligent worship. Some say logical worship. Uh, the complete Jewish Bible says, which is your temple, quote, temple worship, unquote. In other words, he's making, they're making the, the, uh, the point that just as he's talking about how Israel worshipped under the temple, this is the appropriate way to worship God nowadays. But it all comes down to spiritual worship in this context or in this sense. You're taking the flesh, the sin-tainted flesh, your sinful flesh that has an experience of sin, the remainder of the experience of sin that you had in Adam, and you're dominating it with spiritual forces from your heart, from your spirit, you're dominating your flesh. So that's spiritual worship. 
And notice he says that that living sacrifice is holy and acceptable unto God. Well, something that's holy and acceptable unto God should mean something to us, shouldn't it? Now, notice what Paul is saying. Paul is saying for us to do something with our bodies. Now, we know he's talking to Christians. We know he's talking to people that are saved. He's saying this is the job of the Christian. Well, if it's the job of the Christian, then it's not God's job. See, if it's God's job, then he would say, and I'm glad to know that someday, somewhere, some way, somehow, your bodies will be presented living sacrifice because God will do that for you. But he doesn't. He says that's up to us. Now, how are we going to do that? Now, remember, this goes back to chapter 7 and 8 where Paul talks about his own struggle and the sin that's in his flesh, not in him, not in his spirit, not in the real man on the inside. From the inside, from his spirit, he delighted in the law of God, but he saw another law in his flesh trying to draw him off to do the wrong thing. So now he's saying, here's what God expects of you, or here's what is available to you and is holy and acceptable unto God, and that is for your spirit to dominate your flesh, to overcome its lustful or sinful desires. How are we going to do that? Verse 2. And be not conformed to this world. One translation says, and it's an accurate literal translation, don't be fashioned unto this age, this world age or current age. In other words, he's talking about the world system that Satan is God of. He says, be not conformed to this world or this world system, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word transform is the word metamorphosis. It's the same word that's used in Matthew 20, um, I'm sorry, Matthew 14, I think it is, where it says that Jesus went up onto the mountain of transfiguration. It says he was transfigured before them. It's the same word translated, tra- or that's translated in Romans 12 too, transformed. It means to metamorphosize. Now Luke explains that uses the, the, uh, the example, tells the, the incidents of the transfiguration. And he says it this way. He describes it by the Holy Ghost. He said, the fashion of Jesus' countenance was changed. So if we take those things together, we'd be completely accurate in saying, be not conformed to this world, but let the fashion of your countenance be changed by the renewing of your minds. In other words, it'll make you a new person on the earth. Now, again, that's not something God does for you. It's something that you do for yourself. We know that the Bible says that man is spirit, soul, and body. He is a spirit being created in the image of God. His spirit is an eternal spirit. He has a soul which is made up of the mind, the will, and the emotions, and he lives in a body. Well, we know at the new birth, when we ask Jesus to be Lord of our lives, the Bible says we become new creations. Old things pass away. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, Second Corinthians 5.17 says. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. Well, what things pass away? Spiritual things. The old spirit in man is replaced by a new spirit, a new creation. But of the three parts of man, the new birth only affects one part. And that's the spirit. The other two parts, the soul and the body, are left for man to deal with and do something about. Now, folks, would you not agree that this is the utmost, of the utmost importance, the number one job for the believer? I mean, when we understand that the spirit... The new birth, the recreation of the spirit does not affect the soul or the mind. And it does not affect the body. And that's the very work that Paul says by the Holy Ghost. After explaining all that Jesus has done for us and the mercy of God in in providing everything that we have and the power of the spirit of God to overcome and so forth. Explaining to us how that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. How that we've been made more than conquerors through him that loved us. After all those things, then he says by the Holy Ghost, now here's what I'm encouraging you to do. 
Present your bodies a living sacrifice because that's holy and acceptable unto God. In other words, God likes that. God wants that. And be transformed. Be turned into a new person in your soul, your mind, your will, and your emotions through the renewing of your mind. Now, this word renew is interesting because it's the root word, the, the same root word that's used in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, where it says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. So Paul is saying by the Holy Ghost, if language means anything, Paul is saying by the Holy Ghost, you can have the same transformative effect on your soul through the renewing of your mind to the word of God that took place in your spirit when God replaced the old man and put in a new man, a new spirit. That's the effect that the, that the renewing of the mind can have upon the Christian life. Sounds to me like that's pretty important. So how do we do that? Be transformed by the, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word renew uh, from the original Greek means reversal by repetition. In other words, to replace an old way of thinking with a new way of thinking through repetition. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now notice this part of the verse. That you may prove. The word prove means to put to proof or to determine by experience. That you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That you may prove or determine or experience what is the good and acceptable will of God. Now there's, there's three things that we need to know about this verse. And there's three things that the Bible instructs us concerning Uh, God and God's will for our lives in this verse. Number one, God has a special plan for your life, a special plan and a special purpose. What Paul calls by the Holy Ghost, the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The second thing that you need to know about it, that that, uh, about the will of God for your life as revealed by this verse is God wants you to know what that is. The third thing you need to know, and based on the other two, maybe the most important is that the only way somebody is ever going to find out what God's special plan and purpose for their life is, is through the renewing of their mind to the Word of God. Now, folks, Paul mentions the renewing of the mind in two other places. But only two other places, and and really almost in a passing sense. Now, why is that? Why, he gives us more information. Maybe we ought to uh, take a moment and look over at the other two. We'll come back to Romans chapter 12. But let me read to you from Ephesians chapter 4, first of all. Paul writes to the Ephesian church. And he stayed in Ephesus longer than any other place. He stayed in Ephesus for three and a half years, according to the book of Acts. Now, remember, Paul has never been to Rome. He's never taught these Christians in Rome. They are... Uh, his grandchildren in the faith, so to speak, because the people that started the church were schooled to some degree at least, experienced uh, some degree of Paul's teaching. And uh, uh, so the the church at Rome is kind of a second-generation church, not one that Paul planted, but somebody that Paul converted did plant. But he's never taught them there. He's never been there to teach them doctrine. He's never, whatever he taught in Ephesus, he has not taught in Rome which in my thinking is part of the reason why we have more specific doctrinal information in the book of Romans and and, uh, unique doctrinal information in the book of Romans than we have in any of the the letters that he wrote. It's not that he's trying to get more across to the Romans. It's that he was already at the other churches, sometimes for an extended period of time, in some cases for an extended period of time. And he's already taught them things that he's having to write down to the Romans because they've never heard him say. And there's no way that Paul would know uh, other than by revelation what... 
his children in the faith or those that had been converted that started the church at Rome has taught or how effectively or how correctly they have been taught. So he gives us some more, uh, more of um, uh, nuts and bolts information in the, the book of Romans than any other place. For example, the, the treatise that he included in, in uh, chapters 9, 10, and 11 about Israel. We don't have that anywhere else in any other letter. Well, why did he tell it to Rome? There weren't more Jews in, uh, in Rome than it would be in Jerusalem. He says things about, uh, about the Jews writing to the Roman church that he didn't say to the Hebrews, knowing that that was going to go directly to them in, in Jerusalem. So why would that be? Well, it must be that Paul taught these things in churches that he established in cities that he went to. At least that's in my thinking. If you've got another idea, I'm open to hear it. But I'm thinking that perhaps it's because he would have taught these things if he was in town for any length of town, any length of time, excuse me, and he would have covered some of these topics. But since he's never been to Rome, he's got to cover them by a letter. So he says concerning the will of God, he says that the only way you're going to be able to find out the will of God for your life is to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. To be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I, oh, I, I turned over to Ephesians chapter 4. I lost my place there for a second. Let me read Ephesians chapter 4 starting in verse uh, 22. He says, writing to the church that you put off concerning the former conversation of the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. In other words, he's saying, put off the old man, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, or renewing your mind to the word is the the next step, which has something to do with putting on the new man. Now, let me read to you from Colossians chapter 3. He says in a little different terminology, uses a little little different context in in Colossians 3. Um, Let me start in verse 8. He says, but now you also put off all these... Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. Now, he says to the Colossians, and the Colossians aren't any more spiritual than the Ephesians. But he says it in a different way. He says to the Colossians, because you're born again, because you've made Jesus the Lord of your life, you have already put off the old man. You have already put off the old man. Now, obviously, he's talking about behavior in both cases. He's talking about behavior. He's talking about the way that we live. He's talking about our lifestyle. He's not talking about saved versus unsaved. Because everybody he writes to in both of these letters are all saved. Filled with the Holy Ghost and so forth. But here he says, you have put off the old man with his deeds, verse 10, and have put on the new man. Now here he tells them that they've already put on the new man. Now what's the difference in the the Colossians and the Ephesians? None. He's just saying, saying it in a different way. Notice it says, and you have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge. Which is renewed in knowledge. After the image of him that created him. In other words, what he's saying is this. He's saying, being born again in a technical sense, being born again is putting off the old man. Our relationship with Adam is ended because we become new creatures in Christ Jesus. But the putting on of the new man, the living of the godly life, that God desires for us and that we need to do here on the earth to be witnesses for Jesus, as well as walking in the blessings of God, the full measure of God's blessings, comes through the knowledge of God's word, the renewing of our minds to the knowledge of God's word. Now, folks, this is an argument uh, or an, uh, an issue, a controversy among the church for thousands of years, and that is what is sanctification? 
See, Paul says in one time, one place to sanctify ourselves, and in another place he says, you are sanctified. Well, why? To the people that he said they were sanctified, are they more spiritual than the people he says to sanctify themselves? What's he saying? Well, we are sanctified in the sense that Jesus has become the Lord of our life and we've passed from death to life. Talked about spiritual death to spiritual life. But then the instruction to sanctify ourselves has to do with renewing our mind to the word and presenting our body a living sacrifice. Very specifically, sanctification is the process of the renewing of the mind and the presenting of your body as a living sacrifice. It's not a one-time event. It's a continual process. A continual process. Now, back to Romans chapter 12, where Paul says, Be not conformed or fashioned according to this world age, present age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. As I said, let me go through those three points again that this verse tells us. Number one, God has a plan and purpose for your life. And it's perfect. It's better than anything you could ever want for yourself. Number two, he wants you to know what that plan and purpose is. And number three, the only way anybody is ever, you, me, or anybody else, any other Christian, is ever going to know what that plan and purpose is so that we can walk in it is when we renew our mind to the Word. In other words, the answer is to God's plan for our life is in the Word. Now, this is something, as, you, as I said to the Ephesians and the, uh, the Colossians, excuse me, to the Ephesian church and the Colossians, in the letters that Paul wrote, it's the renewing of the mind is almost just a side issue. He didn't stop and explain it. He didn't spend any time on it. He doesn't define it. He doesn't describe it. He doesn't do anything other than say, be renewed in the spirit of your mind of the Ephesians. And the new man is renewed in knowledge after him that created us. That's all he says. Now, if the renewing of the mind is such an important issue, why is there not more information about it? Seems to me if that's the job of the Christian, and it is the number one job of the Christian, seems to me that there ought to be uh, more information about it. Well, the answer to that is very simple, folks. Paul gives more information about it to the Romans who he has not preached to than he does to the Ephesians and the Colossians who he spent months with in in the case of the Ephesians, years. What does that tell us? That suggests to us that that was such a basic foundational doctrine and understanding of the early church that Paul took a little bit more effort to tell it and to describe it to the Romans than he did anybody else. But in this present day, in this modern day church, modern day age, it is such a a little practiced activity that for many, if not most Christians, it seems like some new and radical doctrine. But it is the foundation for spiritual development and it is the foundation for our Christian walk. To renew our minds to the word that we may present our bodies a living sacrifice. How many of you, well, if I ask for a show of hands, everybody's going to raise your hand, so don't bother. Every Christian wants, to, wants their body to act and their life to reflect the things of God. I mean, you've got to be in an awful backslidden state not to want your life to reflect good things for God. Right? Well, why do so few Christians do that then? Because they're trying to control their body through the power of their own flesh rather than renewing their minds through the word. Verse 3, for I say through the grace given unto me to every man, that means every woman too, that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, 
but to think soberly according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Now, I'm going to rock your world here for a moment, folks. We think of renewing our minds to the Word as renewing our minds to promises of provision, promises of healing, promises of blessing, and so forth. That's what we think of when we say renewing the mind. We automatically think of scriptures that God has promised great things to us, victory, peace, whatever the case might be. But the renewing of the mind that Paul addresses, and those are, things, those are good things. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not you know, throwing that off, saying that's not important. It is. But the thing that Paul addresses when he speaks of presenting your body as a living sacrifice and renewing your mind, the very next thing that he speaks of and speaks of for many verses hereafter is our relationship with one another. How we think about ourselves and what we think about other people. Verse 3, for I say through the grace given unto me to every man, every person among you, not to think. The word think is literally the word estimate or to have an opinion of. Not to estimate himself more highly than he ought to estimate. In other words, the Bible says you should have a certain estimation of yourself. But don't think of yourself more highly than that estimation. Don't create more opinion of yourself than the opinion that the Bible gives you and provides for you. And remember, it all goes back to the renewing of the mind. In other words, he's saying the word will tell you who you are, so don't think of yourself above that. For I say through the grace of God given unto me, to every man among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. The word estimate or the word think, the, the word that's translated think in the King James is literally the word estimate or to have an opinion of. It's, trans, it's used four times in this one verse three. Let me, let me give them to you. I'll translate them as estimate. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you not to estimate himself more highly than he ought to estimate. But to estimate, estimate. According as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Well, you can readily understand why they wouldn't translate them all the same thing. Because when he says, think soberly, as it's translated in the King James, think soberly, that would be estimate, estimate. Well, what does that mean? Well, estimate... Or any time a, a Greek word or Hebrew word is used uh, in a double sense like that. It always talks to the strength or the attitude behind the action. So the translators translated this word soberly, and I think it's accurate. I think it's a good choice. Because the word that they chose refers to thinking apart from or unmoved by emotion. In other words, thinking based on a proper estimation or truth, rather than just an opinion or an idea. And so what is he saying? He's saying regarding the renewing of the mind, he's saying regarding the transformation to find and discover and experience God's will, he's saying what we think of ourselves and others has a huge part to play. First thing he mentions. Now, if it was us writing this, we'd say, now, don't forget to, to, uh, to focus on and renew your mind to healing scriptures. Don't forget to focus on and, and renew your mind to promises of God's provision. Tithing and receiving and giving and so forth. Don't forget to renew your mind to the promises of God's peace. And the promises of God's victory. And all the promises of God's blessing. Because that's what we focus on. And again, it's not a wrong thing to do. It's a good thing to do. We need to train our mind to everything the Bible says. But the one thing that Paul mentions and starts off with is what we think of ourselves and what we think of other Christians. And notice he talks about that estimation should be based on this truth 
according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Now, what does he mean, the measure of faith? Well, we know that everybody receives a measure of faith when we're born again. But we also know that that measure of faith, whatever we start with, and and God doesn't play favors, so he's got to deal to every person the same measure, the same amount, whatever word you want to use, the same degree of faith. We all start in the same place. We'd have to. Otherwise, God would be playing favorites. And he is no respecter of persons. But we also know that the Bible says that that faith can grow. Paul, who wrote the letter to the Romans, writes to the Thessalonians and commends them because their faith grows exceedingly. He said, I'm proud of you because your faith and love grow exceedingly. So the measure of faith he's talking about is not, he can't be talking about the faith that we receive when we make Jesus the Lord of our lives and and just what do we do with it by building on the word and and uh, renewing our mind to the truth of the word. That principle would apply, but that can't be the context of what he's talking about. What does he mean the measure of faith? Well, remember, he's talking about what we think of ourselves and what we think of other people. Now he's going to talk about how God uses people in different ways. He's still talking about the same thing. He's talking about renewing our mind to the understanding of how God uses us in different and unique ways and how we should think about ourselves and one another because of it. Verse 4, for as we have many members in one body and all the members have not the same office. He's talking about a measure of faith in regards to what God uses us to do. So we being many are one body in Christ and every one members of another. That was an interesting point you might be uh, interested in, at least you need to make a note of it, and that is Paul is the only one of the gospel or of the uh, writers to the church, the authors of the letters to the church, that uses the idea or the illustration of the church being like a body. He's the only one, and he uses it over and over and over again. So he's talking about how the body works together. Apparently, this is the example that the Holy Ghost gave him to explain how we're supposed to fit together and how we're supposed to work together and what we're supposed to think about each other in the process. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that's given unto us, where the prophecy let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. Now, folks, can the proportion of faith that he's talking about in verse 6 be different than the measure of faith he's talking about in verse 3? Has he changed subjects? So the measure of faith he's talking about is the measure of faith that God has given you. Not that measure that grows because we focus on the word and say the word and and act on the word. And our faith uh, is intended and designed to grow bigger and bigger and bigger or stronger and stronger and stronger. That's not the faith he's talking about. He's talking about the faith that God gives you to stand in the place that he has for you in the body of Christ. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. Whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. Have you noticed that prophecy works on different levels? You get somebody that genuinely stands in the office of the prophet, that prophecy carries a lot more weight than just somebody that speaks, thus saith the Lord, and speaks to edification, exhortation, and comfort. As Brother Hagin used to say at the office of the prophet carries a stronger anointing and a, a weightier prophetic word than just the simple gift of prophecy. Remember Paul wrote to the Corinthian church and he said you can all prophesy in that one by one. Well that can't mean that everybody's a prophet because he also wrote to the Corinthians and says are all apostles or all prophets and the answer is understandably no. So there's a difference between prophesying and being a prophet. Has to be. One of those differences, there's a lot of them, but one of those differences is the weight 
or what Paul identifies as the measure of faith on the prophecy. So he says, if prophecy is the gift, part of the specific plan and purpose that God has for our life, then let's prophesy or speak by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost according to that measure of faith. Then he talks about another way that God uses people. Verse 7, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering. Now, this word is used in the book of Acts, uh, Acts chapter, uh, well, where is it? Acts chapter 5, I guess. No, it'll be Acts chapter 4, where it talks about how that the, the, uh, the deacons ministered to the people waiting on tables. And then it talks about uh, how Paul and, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Peter and the apostles said that they would give themselves to the ministry of the word. Same word is used. It means to deliver to the needs of the people. That's all it means. It means to deliver to the needs of the people. Now, people obviously, according to the example in the book of Acts, I said chapter 4, it's chapter 7, I guess it is. That example in the book of Acts shows how the people in the church on different levels, some in a ministry office and others that are used as what we would call ushers or the ministry of helps in the church, they're both ministering, but they're ministering in different ways. They're both delivering to the needs of the people, but they're delivering different things because people have different needs. So he's saying God uses some people to deliver to the needs of the people. It may be in a public sense. It may be in a private sense. But that's according to the measure of faith that God gives you to stand in that place. Or he that teacheth on teaching. Have you noticed teaching operates on different levels? Some teaching has a much weightier, or uh, I, I keep using the word weighty or heaviness because that's the Old Testament word for it. But there's a heavier um, a heaviness on some teaching. I don't mean I don't mean depressing. I mean, uh, well, how do, let me use the different terminology. There's some teaching that goes to your heart more than other teaching does. One of the things that I was always impressed with Brother Hagin is before he'd go out and minister, he would always talk to the Lord about ministering to the hearts of the people. Ministering to the hearts of the people. Well, you could have two people standing up on the same platform in the same service, same presence of God there in operation. You could have one person share something, maybe teach for a little bit, and another person come right after it, and you would notice. And Brother Hagin would do this sometimes just to show us how spiritual things worked. You'd find that under the same circumstance, same situation, same anointing in the service, maybe not the same measure of anointing on the individuals, the same measure of anointing in the same service, some teaching would have a greater impact on your heart than others. Some exhortation would have a greater impact on you than others. Why is that? Well, it's all part of the measure of the Holy Ghost upon the person that's being used. Well, shouldn't we want the, the greatest impact all the time? That's not the way God goes. That's not the way God works. Why? Because sometimes we need things that might not be something that specifically ministers to your heart, but on a different level, it might minister to somebody else's heart in a greater way than the other guy could have and reach them in a better way than they would have. Does that make sense? Those are a lot of words, but you understand what I'm trying to say? So he says, teaching is based on the measure of faith. And remember, he's talking about the measure of faith in connection with how God uses us. Or he that exhorteth on exhortation. Now, the word exhort literally means to encourage or we we substitute the word encourage but it 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 goes much further than that exhortation spiritual uh, exhortation is a lot more than than uh, uh, than encouragement 
It's persuasion. For example, let me, let me give you this example, and I hope, you'll, hope this one will make sense. It's, it should be uh, well-known enough to where everybody can get this, or most everybody at least. The Bible gives us one example of an evangelist, and that's Philip. It calls him Philip the Evangelist. He's the only person in the New Testament that's called an evangelist. Well, what does it tell us about Philip? It says that he went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. That was his only message. He didn't even get people filled with the Holy Ghost. Peter and John came down. When they heard that, the, that Samaria had received the word of God, they came down and, and ministered the Holy Ghost to them. And they were filled with the Spirit and spoke with other tongues. Well, why didn't Philip do that? Because that wasn't his message. So if the only example that we have in the Bible is Philip, for an evangelist is Philip, then we have to accept what the Bible tells us about an evangelist as the pattern for evangelists. To, to add something else to it would be to add something to the Scripture. And if there was something else that we needed to know about an evangelist that the Holy Ghost didn't show us, then he's done us a disservice. How are we supposed to understand the things of God if he didn't tell us plainly and show us plainly? So what do we know about Philip? Well, we know he had one and only one message. And that was he preached Christ. He didn't preach the Holy Ghost. He didn't get people filled with the Spirit and speak with other tongues. He preached Christ. And the means that he preached Christ was that he performed signs and miracles. It says the people in Samaria gave heed to the things Philip spake, seeing, this, uh, seeing and hearing the miracles which he did. And it tells us which ones he did. So the New Testament pattern, the only example we have of a New Testament evangelist is somebody whose message is Christ and who has signs and miracles in their ministry. That's the only example that we have. Well, where do we put Billy Graham in that? By his own admission, he's never had a sign or a miracle or, or any healing or anything like that, any supernatural occurrence in that sense in his ministry. Where does he fit? Well, we can't say that he's a New Testament evangelist. Now, I know a lot of people get upset about that, but he doesn't fit the pattern. He either does or he doesn't. It doesn't have anything to do with me. It just has to do with what the Bible says. He doesn't fit the New Testament pattern of, of an evangelist. Well, what does he fit? He fits the pattern of an exhorter. Because there's something about Billy Graham. Uh, if you've ever been in his meetings or ever seen one of his meetings on, uh, uh, on TV, where they've got recorded and they're showing some of them nowadays, you know that he preaches a simple message. His message is Jesus. Very simple message. But there's a persuasiveness to it. See, exhortation is more than encouragement. There's a persuasion to it. And there's a persuasion for people to give their hearts and lives to Jesus. And they did by the thousands in his meetings. Now, folks, you know as well as I do that not everybody could preach Billy Graham's sermon and get the same results that Billy Graham got. I certainly couldn't. Why? Because I don't have that same measure of exhortation, persuasion on me. Joel Osteen's got a lot of that on him. Now, his means of persuasion or the measure of persuasion or exhortation that God's given him is in a different area. His measure of persuasion seems to be that no matter where you are, God will see you through or something to that effect. But don't you know that message doesn't work for anybody, for everybody either? I'd kill my church preaching Joel Osteen messages because it wouldn't be sincere. It wouldn't be believable. From him, it comes out, and you know that's him. I, I couldn't even put on the smile. Well, why can't we do the same thing other people do and get their results? Because of the measure of faith that's upon them. And Paul called it grace and gifts, divine gifts. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? That's what Paul is talking about. He's talking about that God uses us in different ways. 
And God's got a way that he wants to use you. And that's part of his divine plan and purpose for your life. And we're supposed to find that out. But you can't unless you're transformed from the world's way of thinking by the renewing of your mind to the word. He goes further, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, another ministry in the church, another operation in the church is he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. Or another translation that says liberally. Now let me talk about this one for a minute. Aren't we all instructed to give? Aren't we? Well, why would God give somebody something extra, certain people something extra in that area? Well, that's one of the things Paul identifies. Because he knows that some of the people in that church that he's writing this letter to are designed, made to be used by God in that regard. Now, I'm going to read something to you from 1 Timothy chapter 6 because I think it's important, and I won't take but just a moment on this. I know I've run out of time. But let me, let me read something to you real quickly from 1 Timothy chapter 6 regarding giving that I think would fit very appropriately here. Because you get a lot of people with, with a lot of different and goofball ideas about how things are supposed to work. And it seems like the people that know the least have the loudest voice. Paul's writing to Timothy and he says this. 1 Timothy chapter 6 beginning in verse 17. He says, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded... In other words, have the right attitude. High-minded about what? Well, about themselves for one thing. About the things of God for another thing. Be not high-minded. But he doesn't say high-minded about what. So we would have to assume that that means high-mindedness as a principle. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Don't think less of other people than you ought to think. Don't think more of the things of the world than you ought to think. Don't think less of the things of God than you ought to think. High-minded is a principle that he tells you to avoid. And it's the first thing that he says in Romans 12, 3 related to renewing your mind and being transformed by the word of God. So he said, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, selling everything that they have and giving to the poor. Is that what it says? Well, where does the church come off preaching that everybody's supposed to do what Jesus told the rich young ruler? Oh, the rich young ruler came to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said, you've got one problem. You're rich. Sell what you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Well, if that's the principle, then why didn't Paul tell Timothy to make sure that all the rich people sold what they had and gave it up? See, folks, the Bible is very clear. That even though there was one experience and only one experience that we have record of in the book of Acts where they had all things in common, since that's the only time, the only experience, the only example that we have, we cannot build a doctrine off that. Now, some people have taken that and said, well, we need to go back to the New Testament church. We need to be like the New Testament church was and live in a uh, communistic type thing, a socialistic type of system. Where everybody's provided for. And you'll even see politicians stand up and say, well, even Jesus would want us to do this. And it always has something to do with taking your money and giving it away to somebody else. Every time. But please notice that the Bible, the Bible, the Word of God, speaks very specifically about personal property rights as the foundation for our giving. Not compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. You can't be cheerful if it's being taken out of your hand. Here he says that there's a measure of faith, or as some people say, the grace of God, 
You can call it by any number of terms, the calling of God upon a person's life, the purpose for God's, of God's plan upon somebody's life, whatever you want to call it. The measure of faith is what Paul called it. He said there is a measure of faith for some for the purpose of giving, and they should give liberally. Now, what does giving liberally mean in Romans chapter 12? It means be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. He's talking about an attitude of heart. He's not talking about how much somebody gives. He's saying some people will have something extra in this area and there'll be people that should be willing to, do, to communicate, willing to give, ready to distribute. Here he's speaking of people with financial wealth that they do good and be ready, be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in good store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. The church is not supposed to live in a communistic type of condition. This commune type thing that some people take and say, well, that's what they did in the book of Acts. Yeah, because the Romans were about to destroy them in just a few short years. They were going to lose everything they had anyway. I don't doubt at all that the closer we get to the end, there'll be times where the Lord will impress upon us to sell something, maybe property that we have, maybe, maybe divest some, uh, some uh, account or some monies that we have saved up for something and use it for the gospel. Before Jesus comes back. What are you going to do with your retirement account after Jesus comes back? Now, I don't want somebody to run off and, and act on this and, and, and do something. Because I'm not telling anybody what they ought to do. What you should do is between you and the Lord. But wouldn't it be a shame for the church to be raptured with millions and millions and millions of dollars in savings? Wouldn't that be a shame? Well, Pastor Mike said we shouldn't save money. I did not. I like the Smith Wigglesworth saying, make all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. But wouldn't it make sense? And I, this is just my idea, just my thinking. But wouldn't it make sense that the closer we get to the rapture, something on the inside of us tells us to use money that we were saving back for our future here on the earth for the things of the gospel? And we might not even know why that is. We might just be impressed. You know, I'm, I've, been, I've set this aside, hadn't touched it in years. I'm going to use some of this. Wouldn't that make sense? Wouldn't the Holy Ghost be smart enough to use resources that he's already got in place rather than trying to change the world's monetary system to get money to us just so that we can sock more away? Is everybody okay with this? Nobody's planning to call you a broker, are they? What you do or don't do is between you and the Lord. And don't blame it on me. If you mess up, do not come and blame it on me. I didn't tell you you ought to do anything. Except renew your mind to the word. Okay, back to Romans 12. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity or liberty. He that ruleth with diligence, there is a gift or a measure of, of faith for ruling. The Bible calls it governments in the church. Folks, you need to understand this. If there is a gift, a spiritual gift, or I don't want to call it spiritual gift because people think I'm talking about 1 Corinthians 12. But if there's a supernatural ability to rule in the church, wouldn't it make sense that some people would have a supernatural ability to rule in civil government? Well, all you got to do is look around and find people that don't have that. And look at the mess that it makes. Yet you can look back to some that did have it that were diligent in their rule, that were out for the, the good of the people rather than the good of themselves. And man, what a blessing that brought. 
The last one in verse 8, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. What is it saying? It's saying God gives some people a supernatural ability to show mercy on others. But doesn't the Bible say we're all supposed to be merciful? Yeah. But some are going to have something extra in that area. And one of the earmarks for that or characteristics of that is cheerfulness. Now, one translation, and I've researched this. I really don't know exactly where they get it. Uh, You can't find it from the language itself. But one translation says, He that visits the sick should do it with the light of God's glory on their face. Now, I love that. I love that verse. I love the idea. And it certainly would fit, but you can't say that that's the the only meaning, the exclusive meaning behind this verse because there are a lot of ways you can show mercy. But one of the things that you should expect is that somebody that's used in this area is going to have a cheerful countenance about them. As a matter of fact, this word cheerfulness is literally the word hilarity. It's a joy for them. And it'll produce fruit. It's not something that somebody just puts on and says, well, I like to do this. I'm going to be this way for other people. I'm talking about something that has a supernatural result in fruit. Verse 9, let love be without dissimulation or hypocrisy. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. In other words, he's saying... Don't show love in one sense or one context when you're at church and then operate in in, uh, the things of the world in a different way otherwise. If you're going to hate evil, hate it all the time. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love in honor preferring one another. Now, this is a concept that Paul is getting across that the words do not do justice. It really does not do justice. Where it says be a kindly affection to one another in honor preferring one another. It literally means persecute strangers with kindness. Now remember this all goes back to Paul says the body of Christ is like a, or the, the church is like a body. Have you ever had your back go out or had any kind of back trouble? Is there any part of you that, that thinks on any level that serves you right? No, and nobody that's ever had any kind of pain or back trouble would ever think that. Now, the devil may be there and screaming that in your, uh, in your ear, sitting on your shoulder screaming that in your ear, but you, that's not you. You don't think that. There's not one part of your body that's glad that it happened. There's not one part of your body that says, well, serves the back right. He's been getting too much attention. There's not one part of the body that wants it to continue. And that's the example that Paul is using. He's saying that's how we're supposed to be fit together. When one person hurts, just like the rest of your body wants it well just as soon as possible, that's the way we ought to be with one another. In honor preferring one another. He's still talking about the body. He's saying we ought to be just as glad when somebody else is exalted or promoted as when we are because we're all part of one another. My right hand never works against my left hand. In fact, they often work together. They don't always have to work together. But they're always ready to help. That's the way it ought to be with each other. Now, folks, you need to understand something. Paul is dealing with the issues and social issues of the day when he teaches this way. You don't have to say, don't be a racist to deal with racism when it's right here talking about how we care for one another. It doesn't say we ought to prefer one another unless they're a different skin color than you. It doesn't say we should prefer one another unless they're a different gender than you. It doesn't say we should prefer one another unless they're in a different social class than you are. Paul is dealing with, by the Holy Ghost, with, with, with modern-day issues, social issues, specifically racism and other things we could identify. Now, how does he do that? 
through the renewing of the mind. Through the renewing of the mind. That's getting to where nowadays I've seen here recently that somebody says, well, if you just say I don't see skin color, that's racist. So, folks, if you renew your mind to the word, you won't see skin color. You'll see a child of God. And you don't have to preach against racism to get there. Just preach the word. Get people to, to renew their mind to the word. You're well on your way. Verse 11, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. The word fervent means burning, burning in spirit. Here's our attitude. Here's the way that, that renewing the mind should bring us, to what, the place that it should bring us to, where the things of God are, are on fire in our hearts, not cold and dead, but alive and on fire. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. Now, the reason that these three are grouped up together in one verse is because it's one thought. Here's how we should operate. We should be rejoicing in our hope. Well, what's, our, what's your hope? My hope is Jesus' return. We should be rejoicing in that hope. There are other things I'm hoping for here on the earth. We should be rejoicing about those things. Why? Because God's word's true. It all goes back to the renewing of the mind. Everything in chapter 12 is about the renewing of the mind. It'll cause us to rejoice in our hope. It'll cause us to be patient in our tribulation. He didn't say, now, if you renew your mind enough, you won't have any trouble. He said, if you renew renew your mind to the word, you'll understand the trouble's part of the package. But you can be patient. Why? Because the word's true. What else should we be? We should be continuing instant in prayer. We ought to be quick to pray. It shouldn't be hard to get people together to pray. We ought to be ready to pray at a moment's notice. We ought to go through our lives every day praying all day long. I'm understanding more and more what Wigglesworth meant when he talked about, uh, I rarely pray for any one thing over 30 minutes at a time, but I never go 30 minutes without praying. We ought to be talking to the Lord all day long. And that's what prayer is. Prayer is a conversation with God. It's not a monologue. It's not you doing all the talking. It's not him doing all the talking. It's you talking to him and him talking back. Prayer is not a specific time on the clock where you're on your knees or put with your face on the floor. It's communication with God. And you can do that anywhere. Verse 13, distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. These are things that renewing our mind of the word will do for us because it will make us aware of other people. And remember, it goes back to verse 3, to think rightly about ourselves and to think rightly about other people. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Now, why would he say bless and curse not? Because he's saying don't just bless sometimes and curse at other times. He says bless those that persecute you and only bless them. Be single-minded about this. Don't waver in this. Don't say good things about some people sometimes because you think you ought to or you're around certain people. But then when you're by yourself and nobody can hear, then you really tell God what you think about them. That's not the way he's talking about it. He's talking about renewing your mind so that you see things from a spiritual standpoint. Bless them that persecute you. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep them with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Now, this last phrase is the, is the key to this verse. Be not wise in your own conceits. There are six times that this, uh, this concept is used in Scripture. Four of them in the Old Testament, two of them in the New Testament. And of the six times... Solomon says there's more hope for a fool than a man that's wise in his own conceit. 
Now, how much hope is there for a fool? Very, very little. The Bible says he'll be destroyed. So what will a man that's wise in his own conceits, in his own thinking? Wise in his own conceits goes back to verse 3, thinking more of himself than he ought to think. That man's headed for destruction. Well, if thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think leads to destruction, then thinking rightly should lead to victory, shouldn't it? Sure it will. Be of the same mind one toward another. That goes back to the body working together and pulling for each other equally. Mind not high things, but condescend to men to the low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. Now, folks, I want you to realize renewing your mind to the Word will make you an honest person. And if you're not an honest person, that means you haven't renewed your mind to the Word. There's no middle ground here. You can't have a renewed mind and be operating dishonestly. Verse 18, if it be possible, as much as lies in you, live peaceably with all men. You need to realize this verse is saying you're not going to, it's not going to be possible in every situation to live at peace with everybody. But the phrase, as much as it lieth within you, another translation says, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. As much as it depends on you. In other words, there may be situations where you can't make peace. We've got a situation like that with some folks in our neighborhood. We've tried to make peace. I've given gifts in secret. I've done everything I can. And they just won't have it. But I'm not going to stir up anything on my end. I can't do anything about them. But I'm not going to stir up things on my end. That's what this verse means. As much as lies within you, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. This word vengeance means personally and accurately exacting revenge or exacting exacting vengeance you don't have to defend yourself in any one thing you know there have been some times where um uh where i've been stuck in some situations where people were saying the wrong things believing the wrong things in in one case particularly somebody that was real close to me and they were the last person on the earth that i wanted to think wrong about me and i just asked the lord to do something about it Part of what I did, I had to forgive the people that were spreading the, the, the lies. But one of the things that I did, I said, Lord, bring, it, bring the light, bring the truth to light. Show everybody involved what's really right here. Show them what I did, show them what I didn't do. If I'm in the wrong, I'll take it. But bring the truth to light. And it wasn't too long a period of time. It wasn't overnight, but it wasn't too long a period of time that the truth came out. And it's so much better when you let God fight your battles for you it's just so much better because every relationship every part of the relationship even the person that was telling the lies that's been restored over the over a period of time now here many years later it's like it never even happened it's just better when god puts things together verse 20 therefore if thine enemy be hungry feed him i don't want to feed him i want him to starve yeah, that's right. You, your flesh, that's what your flesh wants. If your enemy be hungry, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Now, there's a lot of different thoughts about heaping coals of fire. But the best one, that I, the, the best one in my opinion, the one that I like the best, 
is it says you'll heap shame upon him like hot coals on his head. Gives him an opportunity to be ashamed. Now, that doesn't mean everybody will be. Some people are so hardened and so dead to truth and that which is right, some people won't care. But at least you'll know you've done the right thing. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. How are we going to do all these things? He's given us so many instructions. How are we going to do all these things? It all comes down to one thing, folks. Renewing your mind to the word and presenting your body a living sacrifice. Presenting your body a living sacrifice means that you're going to be denying it some of the things in these verses that it wants to do. Like exacting revenge for yourself. Like recompensing evil for evil. Some of those things your body is going to want to do. But if you renew your mind to the word. And think of yourself in the right way. And think of others in the, in the church family the right way. And by the way he's not talking about exacting revenge on the world. He's talking about how we operate in the church. Folks I have a whole lot less trouble with people in the world than I have with Christians. I used to run away when people would advertise themselves as Christian businessmen. I thought, oh, dear God, there's trouble. He's talking about things in the church. It all comes down to one thing, and that is renewing our mind to the word. Thank God for healing scriptures. They've kept us alive. Thank God for prosperity scriptures. They provided for our needs. But the renewing of the mind that he's talking about here, the context that he's talking about. Now, the principle works in every area. But the context that he's talking about is renewing our minds to who we are in the eyes of God and who our fellow brothers and sisters are and how we should treat them and operate with them. Amen? Amen. What do you think the world would look like if the church was really the church? What do you think the world would look like if the church operated toward one another the way the Bible says we should? The Bible says faith works by love. If the church started operating in this kind of love toward one another, man, we'd see an increase in the the results of our faith. I think. I don't know that there's ever any way we could prove it out. But I can just imagine our faith would jump forward like you took the emergency brake off your car. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the privilege of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And the word of God that will transform us from this world's system. Thank you Lord. That your word identifies who we are and what we should think of ourselves. And it also tells us how we should think and the opinion we should have of one another. Lord what a privilege it is to be part of your family. Because you didn't make any mistakes. Thank you for the privilege that we have to love one another. And to operate in the love of God toward one another. In Jesus precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.